0: probably heard of, but didn't read. I'm Dorothy, and with me, as always, is Rye. Hey, everybody. Sorry if uh, this recording sounds a little scratchy. I've got a touch of the plague. Oh, we will try not to exercise your tonsils too much. (laughs) I didn't mean it like that. Anyway, so for the new year, uh, we decided we would look at... The Silver Kiss by Annette Curtis-Klaus, an author who has indirectly been featured on, you know, our regular Trash and Treasures podcast. Yeah, you may remember her from our Blood and Chocolate episode, which had very little to do with the novel it was based on, which, as near as we can tell from the extremely extensive Wikipedia summary, is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, the movie seems to have benefited from the distance. Like, again would read a novelization of the film. Would not read the book. (laughs) An important distinction. Yeah. Um, So we decided we didn't want to read that book, but we wanted to read another of her three novel-length works. Four, but three that were in the 90s. Right. Because she seems to have been fairly impactful on the development of YA in the 90s. YA and paranormal romance. Mm -hmm. And the the intersection between those two. And like, Uh in fairness to us, we were correct. I didn't go looking for any papers or anything, but just reading this as a historical text, boy, a lot going on there. (laughs) Hello, Dorothy here. Uh, As you can see, we got a little too excited to talk about the book and forgot to talk about the drink. This time I made us a sort of sweet and lightly herbal cocktail with a surprising shimmer. You can see videos of it on our Twitter and Tumblr. I posted them when I was doing a test batch. The base liquor is Hendrick's Midsummer. It's a floral gin. It's uh, combined with Driode's imitation aloe liqueur, which has an almost marshmallowy, vanilla-y taste to it. Then there's a couple drops of green mint syrup, soda water, And a slight dash of silver luster dust to give it that really odd and ethereal shimmer. It's uh, pretty tasty, but also pretty strong. And of course, those of you who are uh, patrons can go and check out the actual recipe and, you know, the method of combining. Thanks for your patience, and I'm sorry I forgot to put this in the actual recording. I'll let you get back to it. (coughs) The silver kiss is Klaus's vampire romance kind of perfectly occupies the exact pivot point between the Vampire Chronicles and Twilight. It's, it's sort kind of incredible. Yeah, kinda of eerie, kind of amazing. How did you describe it? Uh, Klaus read the Vampire Chronicles and then Stephanie Meyer read Klaus. I would one hundred percent bet on that sequence of events happening. I can't prove it in any way. Nope, we have no proof for this state for, for this assumption. But I would bet on it. If there were some way to verify that. It's like a game of vampire telephone. Yes. It is. Because <laughs> Anne Rice is many things, and none of those things are appropriate to a good Mormon writer. <laughs> but like filtered through class, I feel like you could arrive at something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is Kind of fascinating. And and Klaus was consciously writing for the YA market as it was blossoming in Mm -hmm. the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, The book was published in 1990, according to the copyright date. Yeah, some articles place it at 1991, but as far as the version we have... Which is like the omnibus edition that has two additional short stories. Oh boy, it sure does. The copyright date appears to be 1990. Yeah, so this was after the uh, Vampcron trilogy had wrapped up and Lurleen McDaniels was sort of beginning to get the ball rolling on that sick kid lit fandom. And boy, you can feel that seeping in too, because apparently Klaus was a children's librarian, but she didn't actually know why A as a genre existed. Until she started studying to be a children's librarian. And boy, does that leap out here. Mm -hmm. In fairness to her, my library didn't have a YA section until like 2002. (laughs) Mine did, even in the 90s, which was where I spent a lot of my time. You know, I was reading things like McDaniels and also books like Rainbow Boys, you know, obvious queer fiction that still was low key enough that you could sneak it out. Um, mm-hmm. Books by Cynthia Voigt, books that were considered to have a sort of literary element above sort of preteen lit. Yeah, they were-, were shelved there. I feel like the genre distinction was still somewhat fuzzy, but it was present. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting that. I think it could be argued that YA in the early 90s sort of occupied a space not dissimilar to where New Adult is at right now. A lot of early YA feels like it's be- it's written like older, middle grade prose, but it's touching on topics that you can't necessarily put in the kids section. And like, yeah, then you have your New Adult fiction where it's like, this is kind of YA, but the, the characters are just a little bit too old and we put sex in it. Yeah. Um, Cynthia Voigt's writing and YA in the early to mid nineties from what I recall touched on topics that were pretty intense and taboo and not just in an anamorph sense, but you had books that were, you know, trigger warnings for everything, but you had books that were written for, you know, a teen audience that were dealing with stuff like, um, young girls suffering habitual sexual abuse by their mom's boyfriends and that's why i was hanging out in the young adult section um i feel like these days it's morphed a little bit in that the sort of element of edge is still present but it seems to have been largely redirected into sort of martial encounters Mm. in fantasy like the the fantasy of war yeah i feel like there's a lot of as YA gains prominence, you have a lot of, we're still talking about these issues, but a lot of it is cro- cloaked in that extra degree of remove of, of genre fiction. Like, you, you know, obviously Collins was a huge deal and that she wanted to talk about her dad being a vet through this lens of dystopian fiction or whatever. I never read them, but I hear they're good. They're fine. I hear they kind of fizzle. Mocking Jay certainly did want to talk about PTSD in a way that's respectable but not fun to read, and the ending was bad. Anyway, hot, extremely hot Hunger Games takes from 2012. (laughs) Yeah, so I I feel like I'm thinking a lot about history because that's most of what interests me about the book we read is the space it occupies in vampire fiction. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is positioned in a gap and I feel like it's almost a linchpin there. But at the same time, like the book qua the book Mm -hmm. it's not very good it's kind of (laughs) rough problem it's It's kind kind of rough. really not good (laughs) in kind of exactly the ways that push my buttons yeah yeah there's a lot of i mean you can tell that she was reading anne rice there's a lot of the same problems that are in those books repeated here but but like even more watered down right Yeah, and 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 the problem with Anne Rice has always been her tendency to water down problems. Mm -hmm. Like, she'll include very intense shit and then just... But it was fine. It was not fine. Or worse, it was a little bit sexy. And it's never... No. It's never. Uh, Content warnings on this one for uh, a lot of like like dorothy said um a lot of this is implicit and not on the page but there's stuff about child grooming implied child sexual assaults explicit discussion of uh child pornography in a way that reflects negatively on the children involved uh, um homophobia a lot of stuff about uh, dying parents and medical stuff depression ne- neglectful neglectful fathers and why they are so okay yeah uh pet death ah yes pet death intense uh-huh. pet death i mean not like other girlsness isn't really a that's trigger really warning. A warning it's just annoying it's just pervasive uh-huh yeah i think that's most of the the really in, and like you know your general body horror and violence stuff right and they're vampires but like yeah there's vampires uh spoilers there's, spoilers. <laughs> there's vampires uh suicide tradition oh suicide yeah quite traditional vampires though which is always Beati- fascinating. Beatified suicide. Mm, yeah, very specifically. Yeah, so uh actually, before we hit the plot beats, I think it's really interesting that there's a forward, an extensive forward, where Klaus, because we have a re release, talks about how she wrote this book. And it's kind of interesting, but also uh, revealing. I mean, mostly it just made me want to read Gaskell's Shiny Narrow Grin, so I've got that in my Amazon wishlist right now. That's the the book that she was inspired by. That she read as a teenager and sort of remembered when writing this. Good. She also wrote an extensive mythic poetry cycle as a teenager, which this is partly based on. I can't pick on her for that. We all wrote cringy things as teenagers every last one of us. Yeah, like... I am withholding every fiber of of assholishness in my body to not pick on her for that. What I am going to pick on her for is the fact that she reused some of that poetry in this book. It's authentic bad teen poetry. <laughs> it sure is. Which is a problem when you're trying to make the teen who wrote it seem deep. Yeah. Yeah, easily the most interesting part of this, for me at least, is the fact that this book is suffused with Not Like Other girlsness and we learned that one of the most extensive parts of the editing process for her was having to go back and, like, bother to make her female protagonist interesting because she'd poured all this initial interest into the male vampire character. And she- the Both of them. It's- Right. It was a love triangle. Yeah. It's not a love triangle anymore, but honestly, that would be more interesting. Well, don't worry. It It came back in 2005. I'm just saying, it would be more interesting- if christopher had been in any way developed oh uh, yeah <laughs> i didn't mean that dark. joke that's a that's a dark and bad joke <laughs> i feel like that's such a thing of of being young and having internalized misogyny except that she was she, except that she wrote this book like when she was an adult and had a master's degree and was working in the children's library field and was involved in a writing group and just sort of toted that baggage along with her to the terminal and checked it (laughs) and checked it and had it stowed so i will say that like god bless to the editor there are some moments in this book that i feel like are trying to get away from that, not like other girls do, but I think it is mostly down to the editor saying, like, poking five different drafts. The editor, or just the dude that ran her writing group and had a weirdly controlling situation with her. <laughs> Let us not get into legal speculation. No, I'm not saying that he was writing it for her, I'm just saying <laughs> that it sounds like he was super controlling over members of his writing group. So the plot is uh, speaking of sicklet, uh, Zoe is 16, her mom is uh, chronically ill, and she is back in the hospital with cancer probably for the last time. Her dad is not dealing with it. By literally just ignoring Zoe and banning her from the hospital. Mm Mm-hmm. And pretending that her mom's going to get well. She, uh... She doesn't drive, but... Yeah, like, I think she's, like, newly 16 and one of those things, like... Yeah. Yeah. Around that age, anyway. Yeah. Um, Zoe has a best friend named Lorraine... And she has just discovered that Lorraine is going to be moving away. Zoe sort of has a resentment for Lorraine. Mm, Because because Lorraine Lorraine isn't supportive in the way Zoe wants. But also Lorraine's mom divorced her dad. And now Lorraine's dad has remarried. And now Lorraine's moving out of state with her dad Mm -hmm. and stepmom. So it's like... An entire thing. And this book definitely. And I'm really wondering, with as much time as Zoe devotes to thinking that Lorraine's not supportive enough, mm-hmm. I'm really, really wondering how supportive Zoe's been of Lorraine this whole time. Mm-hmm. Or whether she's just a, sort of been dismissive of everything Lorraine says about her personal life. Because your mom's not dying. Right. It it, it it is one of those things where it's like, I recognize in Lorraine that kind of like slightly self-centered teenage awkwardness of, I know you're going through a hard thing, but I don't know how to talk about it. So I'm going to try to deflect for you. But but like in uh, Zoe, I feel this vibe that nothing could ever be good enough. Right, right. Like, because like, you're going through the worst thing in the world. Exactly. But it, I think it would be better if it acknowledged that acknowledge in more than one or two off paragraphs that Zoe was also, like, being kind of an asshole about this. Like, then I would feel better about yeah, cause it. because there's never really any acknowledgement that Zoe has a responsibility to feel supportive towards Lorraine when Lorraine's life is in upheaval. It's just, Lorraine's life is in upheaval, but she's not close enough to Zoe. Uh-huh. And it frustrates me. Plus, it's one of those situations where... Like in the Don Rochelle book, we have the real champ here. <laughs> uh huh. BFF is always the real champ. Also, it definitely soured me when there's because you know they're they're sort of fighting early on, but also like hugging in the bathroom, and like the the random school bully comes in and is like, "What are you guys queer?" And it's like, "Oh, super, it, we're not. We're just At, besties." And I, I thought this was going to develop into a bullying subplot, but no, this person existed only to ask whether they were queer so that they could say, "Nah." It's the weirdest drive-by homophobia I've seen in quite a while. And it's really weird that it wasn't visited on Simon. Which brings us to Simon. Yeah. So, um, Zoe is skinny and pale with big boobs. Yeah, she only tells us that she's tragically thin. She never eats. It's very sad. Which we forgot to warn for eating disorders. That's true. It's not acknowledged as an eating disorder, but it's clearly an eating disorder because she's... Constantly thinking about her dying mother, mm-hmm. and somehow this coincidentally results in her not eating enough and being wan and pale and thin and hollow-cheeked. And specifically, uh, but in a sexy way. Yeah, specifically, a lot of focus on the thinness of her wrists, and and like the the hollowness of her cheeks, mm-hmm. like sexy twiggy, yeah, kind of anorexia. So yeah, that could be. Uh, triggering take care it made me uncomfortable and i <coughs> and i've never had an eating disorder as somebody who who passed off having uh some eating disorders by reading about them obsessively i see these shit mm-hmm. yeah like like i've never had an eating disorder but teetering on the edge of body issues like it's very present in this, and mm-hmm. there's a very fetishistic aspect to it. Well, and boy, especially did, coupled with the paleness. Well, and speaking of '90s vampire stuff, boy, did it remind me of Anita Blake.
1: Mm-hmm. And I know
0: it's a thing of like Anita Blake, who is basically basically Zayd, yeah, from <laughs> Handbook for Mortals. Yeah, you're not wrong. They're basically the same. Uh-huh. Pretzels is the same. Uh-huh. And by pretzels, I mean white women in paranormal fiction. Now, now, that's <laughs> not true. Anita Blake had Mexican heritage, which Laurel she K. Was, Hamilton would like us to know about. Yes, she is half Mexican and half German. And just so not, creamy pale. And it's not un-PC to say she's Mexican because her mom, who is dead and can't speak, would totally say Mexican. But she's extremely pale and only got the, the sexy dark eyes and hair from her mom. Yo- well, and them hips. uh huh, Which lie. Constantly. Which lie all the time. Because she doesn't have a thigh gap, but weighs a, just an apparently massive 120 pounds. My anorexic mother weighs 120 pounds and has since before she had children. The only time she topped 120 pounds was when she was pregnant and had to stop smoking. She still weighs 120 pounds despite the breast implants. Which, lie, yeah. Which adds a few. Get- 120 pounds is not a super healthy weight for a lot of people. Get implants if you want, kids, but be healthy about it. Yeah, no, no. I'm, my complaint is not about the implants. My complaint is that she has apparently deducted right, the, what, what, the like- mass from the rest of her body <laughs> in mm-hmm. order to compensate. We've talked like, about... I'm the same height as her and she genuinely still judges me for not being the same weight when my skeleton is not the same. Her mom, uh, this has been, Dorothy's mom is the worst human alive corner. <laughs> you can't prove that. That's true. Scientifically. There, that's true. Dorothy mom hasn't murdered anybody. There's a president. That's true. If given the opportunity, she would. <laughs> We've talked about how to do the Anita Blake books on this series, but the trouble is they don't get really wild until a couple in. And, like, that's an investment. Yeah, and by then it's, like, confusing and annoying. And there's only one shitty vampire series that we're willing to devote multiple readings worth of time to. Yeah, I did read, like, 18 of those back in oh, high yeah. school. But. Oh, yeah. Sean and I read a shitload of them back in the day. So many. Mm-hmm. But to to recall double, it all for an entertaining podcast format. Double digits, but yeah, they don't get super wild until like fucking bloody bones or something. Oh, worse than that, it's it's easily Narcissus and chains. Oh, Narcissus and chains is up there. When we've just got, we've just got duo, but he's my OC. Duo mm. Maxwell, but he's my OC. The book that that they had to rewrite in second editions because she wrote sexy assault into it. We would have to read the original. Right, we'd have to get a hold of a first edition. I mean, the non-expurgated text exists on Live Journal. Right, but we'd have to get the non-expurgated version to discuss. Mm-hmm. And do we really um, care enough? We do not. I have fond memories of dunking on Anita Blake on Live Journal. <laughs> I was too shy on Live Journal. Yeah, this has been jamming in discussion of a book we haven't figured out how to do a whole episode on. Jamming in an entire series. Mm. Yes. So that brings us back around to Simon. The shitty biker who wasn't. So for up till now, we've been discussing a fairly grounded story about a girl who's not dealing with her mother's death, in part because she's being prevented from doing so, but also in part because she has some idealized version of how she should be able to take charge of it and how other people should frame it for her. Mm-hmm. And then vampires... Oops! vampires so she goes and cries in the local uh playground which is an intensely real thing for me like like the local playground down my block was very much a real thing good crying spot i usually just climbed a tree but still good mood good early 90s mood Uh, but yeah very real thing and there she meets just the shittiest vampire he sucks is the thing Like, there's so much, considering that he was apparently the one the author devoted all of this time and energy to. And that her writing guy was like, wow, I can tell how deep and interesting this guy is. And I'm like, where? (laughs) Where Where is it? Where? (laughs) Where's all the deep interest? I didn't find it. Like, she came up with a backstory, but that's not the same as him being deep or interesting. And I feel like that's a distinction we gotta make. Did she come up with a backstory? Or did he steal it from Lestat? (laughs) I mean, she went into all the specificity about the dating of the Roundhead Revolution and everything. Yeah, that's fair. Like, she came up with a specific historical context in which his mom's death and his death happened. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. And, like, contextualized the religious aspects of his mother's reaction to the whole sequence of events. So she put research in. There was a lot of time spent on this on, enormous info dump of a backstory. Yeah. It, she spent time going through reference books about the British Revolution. Unfortunately, which is not the same thing as making a rounded character. He yeah. sucks. Unfortunately, we're mostly stuck with him in the present. He is extremely pale. And his hair is platinum. And he's the one who tells us that Zoe has enormous titties because somehow this is supposed to endear the reader to him. Because it makes him, like, real, man. Like, that's what dudes notice, right? Well, it makes him a real asshole, I guess. Yeah, it's super gross because he, like, notices her and starts thinking about how he could totally kill her. But she seems kind of deep. And she's got that dark, curly hair, because of course she does. Uh Uh-huh. And big titties on her skinny little stick frame. Yep. And they don't... They have a couple of meetings, none of which are- but mostly he just has really shitty things to her. Just yeah. mean. Just mean and shitty. Yeah, they're both supposed to be connecting about how they're both sad about having dead moms, but it, it's not- Which is the, literally the only thing Klaus could come up with for them to connect over. Uh-huh. Is having dead moms. Yeah, because he never says anything nice or supportive to her. Right, and, and because he's not interested in anything she's interested in. Because he's so divorced from humanity. Because- he's a copy of louis but badly because he's detached from humanity but in a way that makes him literally he's never spoken to anybody in 300 years and considering that zoe's hallmarks of excellence as as a deeper girl are her interest in writing poetry bad poetry Again, who of us didn't? <laughs> I didn't write bad poetry. Poetry was too intimidating to me. Like that's not even something they can connect over. Is her creative pursuits? He doesn't even notice or care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just happen to like one time Both he wrote ra- have dead moms. Yeah, and or one time dead moms. he runs into her after Lorraine is almost murdered. Yeah. Um, the vampire rules are in this are neat though. Yeah, it's kind of interesting when something because like it is so clearly inspired by Rice, but it's also pulling a lot of Dracula rules. Yeah, this um this one runs on a lot of traditional rules. So vampires can't sleep if they don't have access to their native soil, and they'll just like become more withered and miserable mm-hmm. until they can get back to it. Um, they can't cross running water because. Nature rejects their their inability to die, because <laughs> water, you see, is all about Nature. constant, constant rushing forward, and they never move. And this is one of the frustrating things to me: is Simon confidently recounts these rules. The whole structure of his character is that he's literally never talked to anybody in three hundred years, including not other vampires. Right. So where so is he's he getting just all this? Pulling the shit out of his ass. Well, he claims to and have like, done some reading, yes, right, and and like that—that's something. And I can grasp him having like, like experimented with his own physical limits, but it never says he did that. And if it did, it would change my perception of him. Mm-hmm. That might have been mildly interesting. Yes, because it, it would have been interesting to see if he was like testing how far he was willing to imperil himself in order to get an answer. And then finding his limit and acquiescing to being what he is. Mm-hmm. Or, or even, go, you know, coming back around to despairing of what he is. Like, there's no... We're, we're told that he has, like, many years of being, you know, like... Apparently he was randomly feral for a couple decades. Uh-huh, and then... And just killed a bunch of people, but we shouldn't hold that against him. He feels really bad about it, y'all. But not that bad. So it's weirdly frustrating that he's just telling us all these rules about what he is with no source or history and it feels the opposite of how it felt in interview with the vampire when that was an aspect of despair. Yeah, the, this that that Louie had of- had to construct his own understanding of how they work because there's nothing. This lack of history and community is is killing every character in that specific book. Right, whereas in this There's no question community could ever exist because of the horrible situation that Klaus has constructed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we mentioned that there are murders happening about. Uh, In addition to Simon, there's another vampire running around uh, luring women into alleys and then slitting their throats to disguise the vampire bites. And this is one of those books where nobody's super concerned about that, but the radio keeps coming on at opportune times. The plot radio is always here for you. Yes, UTV is here. <laughs> with only the reports most relevant to you. Yeah, white women are dying. It's really sad. You know what? I'm almost glad that people of color don't exist in this novel because God knows it would be so much worse. The I mean, el- if they did, they'd just become white. Yeah, it has it has that racist problem from the Vampire Chronicles too. Yeah, I'm going to be Presenting on a panel about this soon. And the construction of whiteness in vampire novels is a real problem because it's presented as an achievable. Mm-hmm. And you get bonus points once you become white. Right. And it's. And the whiter you get, the better you are. And that's very present here. Mm hmm. Even in the absence, again, of people of color. Yeah. Into like into the hair, and vampires got whiter skin. No, but... they they get whiter in the hair now. In oh, the, oh right, in the later books. If we're incl- yeah, okay, yeah. in the later books, yeah, their hair pales too. Oh right, because I thought that was just because he went out in the sun. But that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter now. There's discussion of which vampires have white hair because they're super old and powerful and in Bryce's stuff. But but so so that's a side issue, but. Uh Uh-huh. But yes, mostly we're sad because young white women are dying and they're being killed by... By the only thing that could kill young white women. The only thing that can tempt a white woman. Not dick. Uh White women are pure and chaste. No, no, they have to help. Unless they're whores. Like Uh literally everybody who's not Zoe. We have an entire, like, paragraph about how Zoe has not craved the dick yet. Yeah, and it's and it's not that she's asexual or, ar- or aromantic. No, it's that she's, she's special. Yeah, it's like this book wants it to be a sexual awakening story, but it lacks the guts to go in on that even when they have like the the big heady makeout scene where he bites her and all that later on. It just doesn't feel very sexy or sexual for her. So it's just this limp thing that just pivots <laughs> No news on whether the vampire dicks work. No, no, we do not gain that data. But so it just ends up being this weird virgin horror complex that doesn't even commit to the vampires as as sexual awakening metaphor. Women are dying, but weirdly Zoe's not connecting this at all to her experience of her mother's ongoing death. Like she she has no empathy for the families of these women who are like family women like, these are mothers who are dying. And she's not connecting that up, which is weird. Mm-hmm, because she is supposed to be deep and empathetic. Right. But, you know, this, that would be a great opportunity to show that. Again, I know that, like, being a teenager means being kind of selfish a lot of times. And and that's one of the things that hard, book but... almost handles well, is mm-hmm. just the sort of inherent selfishness. Yeah, like, there's almost something there, but it keeps getting hamstrung by these other... By the fact that also she's supposed to be better than everybody else. Right, all these like, internalized misogyny oversights that are just built into the book. Yeah. Which which really cuts short a lot of things that I think I could have potentially liked about it. Yeah. It's really unappealing. Yeah. So, child vampire, because see above point. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, there's a there's a small albino boy in town. Mm-hmm. He's been adopted by a family. Um, he stays awake at night. Shockingly, he turns out to be another vampire. And his whole shtick is he lures young women into alleys and slits their throats. Mm-hmm. He lures them into alleys by crying for his mommy. And uh, as we learn, this is Simon's older brother. Christopher, who mm-hmm. is also his maker, Zoe like goes out and has a genuinely nice time with Lorraine, and Lorraine buys her a nice present, and also um Simon gets some new new threads, Oh right, I forgot, yeah, that scene was so boring. I kind of skimmed it, so there's a scene where Simon gets into an altercation with punks who call him homophobic slurs. They sure do. And he steals their clothing as victory. Mm-hmm. So that now and he it, looks like a sexy punk. Right, and it's this weirdly anti-Lost Boys thing. Because it's always an anti-Lost Boys thing. Because Lost Boys dared. Lost which, Boys was gay. Which, like... <laughs> Lost Boys was homophobic, but it was also gay. That Lost Boys is a mess, but by God, the more... The more vampire authors get shitty about it, the more I become defensive of it. Uh Uh-huh. Like, Simon literally steals punk clothing off these dudes. And Zoe takes a look at him later and is like, you know, usually I would judge punks. But since he's wearing punk clothing, maybe it's deep. And then Lorraine takes Zoe to the mall for a shopping spree. Because Lorraine literally doesn't have the tools to deal with anything that's happening to Zoe or anything that's happening to her. But But she's been given money for a shopping spree because she's moving and new clothes for your new school. Uh Uh-huh. So literally the thing she can do is say, hey, how about we go out and distract ourselves? They have a nice time. They have a nice time at the mall. And then they go to what's clearly a hot topic. It's definitely a hot topic. Like it's this unnamed punk slash goth store where Zoe is reacting with extreme distaste to everyone around her and judging them intensely, even though Lorraine buys her a, a cute present of a cross on a red ribbon. And, like, it genuinely feels like Lorraine's been dragging her around to every fucking store in this mall and trying to get her to pick something. Oh, and finally, <laughs> fine, we'll go to the goth store. Fine, fine. We're getting something here or nothing. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Don't forget that weird scene uh, where Simon goes to the hospital w- and there, we get to hear the the background ladies who are like, oh, she's just dating hoodlums for attention. But we know that, in fact, he is his deep... deep. He's yeah, not deep. He's a fucking hoodlum. There is definitely some... Fe- you, you are correct, there's some fetishization going on there, but... Yeah, it makes me really uncomfortable because it's very overt in how these characters are co-opting. They're co-opting these subcultures. And how they're easily able to move into them, but also able to, to claim the privilege of not actually being part of them. So tourism is as the proper way to interact with anything. Right. Authentic punkness is dirty. Yeah. Unauthentic goth is dirty and trashy. And the only proper way to do this is to falsely interact with economically disadvantaged subcultures from a position of privilege and then move back into your privilege. Yeah, this is a-, as wow. a way to make yourself look variegated. Like Don Rochelle, this is a weirdly middle-class novel about medical issues, because even though her dad, it, like, the, it, it wants to talk her dad about... Her literally doesn't appear to work and just spends every day at the hospital. But there's no, like, medical bill stress. It's not like, oh, the fridge is empty. Oh, no, what do we do? And, like, they've got... No, the problem is that somebody's not making her dinner every day. Mm-hmm. And, like, yes, it's bad that he is neglecting her in order to spend time with his dying wife, because... He should be treating them as a trio mm-hmm. and a unit, but... Yeah, it's a weird set of priorities for the book. Yeah. Like, it's this symbol of a broken home, not not a, a truly sincere look at... Uh, it, well, and it's also it's Pat what... and Maudlin, is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, and also we're not supposed to blame him as it develops. A, a lot of the adult women are either non-characters or kind of implicitly whores. I mean, like, yes, it's implicitly whores because it always is, but it's it's more directly like the neglect is a character defect, not where. whereas the shitty dads in this book are like, well, they were grieving in their own way. You have to understand. Yeah, obviously, Zoe's extremely deep mom who used to do art is not present because she's dying. She's kind of busy with that. But Lorraine's terrible mother decided she didn't want to be married to Lorraine's dad anymore for reasons that are totally unclear. So we're supposed to judge Lorraine's mom for divorcing him because it's treated as like she had agency in the divorce. Mm -hmm. Like that's explicit. But we're also supposed to judge Lorraine's stepmom who commits the mortal sin of wanting to have a garden and enjoying playing her guitar and telling Zoe that maybe Lorraine is enjoying time with her mom and it might not be a perfect time for Lorraine to bust in on the last night. She's got to spend time with her mom. We're supposed to judge her for being the slut who came in and married Lorraine's dad afterwards. It's some weird vibes. And Simon's mom sure did exist and squeeze out two kids. And then she died tragically after after being very sad over the death of her kid which like it's one of those things where it's like Yes, obviously grief is life altering, but it it feels very noble death and suffering. Well, but also she was extra special too, because she was more colorful and special than the church allowed her to be. Mm -hmm. The Church of England. Which is so. Okay, the church is an oppressive structure. Okay, good. But also crucifixes are important and you know, gives life meaning. But also crucifixes actually work on vampires. They do in fact actually work, so... Which Simon avoids telling her by being a shithead and claiming that it's just tacky. Take that off. Take that off your titties because I want to look at your titties without the cross. God, Simon sucks so bad. Oh, I hate him. Uh, Halloween happens. Um, And she just happens to have a Morticia Adams outfit in the house. Like, she literally just happens to. Mm -hmm. Simon has previously pissed on her doorstep. Yeah, again, he's the worst. That's not a joke. No, he literally... Pissed on her doorstep. Which, how? Because he wasn't allowed in her house and it made him me. Because he's a shitty, shitty alpha male. Uh, No, it was made pretty clear that vampires still, like, pee the blood they drink. So I'm not mad about that. Fair enough. We have Lorraine's last night, which remains kind of one of my favorite scenes because it's the one scene that shows some not some actual self-awareness about it's not like other girlsness where they go to sleep for the night and, and Zoe is like I've been kind of shitty, you know she's like, she, you know she's, nah, Lorraine is moving away and losing her mom too, I should be more sympathetic to my friend, and then we move on and it's never spoken of again, but I'm like, ooh, look self-awareness. Well, yeah that that's all that it takes for a redemption is you say i'm aware i was shitty oh. and then everybody has to interact with you again this is why i don't like redemption stories in a lot of media because most of them just take that first step mm-hmm. and then create a situation where it's sort of obligate for people harmed by the individual to keep interacting because the individual who did harm is at that point worked into the social network it bugs me And she does then conveniently move out of town. So we never have to address this again. Yep, literally never. We can move into Simon coming over and dropping this. So Simon comes over and drops a chapter three times as long as any other chapter. Because it's the big researched one. Right, because they've been alternating chapters up until then. Which is very adult romance novel more than YA. Yeah, yeah, it's a structure I've seen a lot in Courtney, Courtney Milan stuff. Mm-hmm. is you take a moment with the heroine, you take a moment with the hero. I haven't read her queer stuff yet, just because I just dropped off her for reading romance a couple years ago. Yeah, I've seen it. I haven't read a lot of romance novels specifically. I tend to play more visual novels and such, but it seems to be a pretty popular format. Yeah, b- because it gives the opportunity to constantly advance the plot, while at the same time constantly looking in on both of the main perspectives Mm -hmm. so the dynamic is allowed to keep ramping up and if you structure it right you can have all of the conflicts always come from the person with less information which allows the conflict to continue to build until the breaking point Mm -hmm. and then everybody resolves so structurally it's a very functional thing that's not happening here no because there's no conflict between these two they literally don't have a conflict. Yeah, there's never... I mean, I guess she's a little... Wor- because they clear up that he's not the murderer pretty dang quick. And then he, she's a little worried that he's gonna bite her, but mostly... It's basically that scene from uh, Queen of the Damned with the safety pin, though. It's basically, let me scratch my titty with a safety pin. A little bit. My big titty. And again, if this is supposed to be a sexual awakening narrative there's no sense of like i don't really she, want to read about horny teenagers in a way that's supposed to be horny but like there could be some sensuality there like it doesn't she feel authentic just kind of happy to have some attention uh-huh. which is a different thing and very sad sad in a way the book doesn't recognize yeah because basically she's been whining about not getting enough attention mm-hmm. and then he pays attention so he should have access to her entirety body and soul And also she should just stop going to school for him, specifically, even though her mom is dying. She'll use that as an excuse, but that's not why she stopped going to school. Mm -hmm. So Simon's whole backstory deal is dropped at one time. (laughs) Yeah, They were a, you know, sort of a poor middling level family. They, They seem to be in the merchant class. They seem to be decently well off, but then they were overextended with the coming of. It's rendered as Von Grab. Now, Rye, I'm gonna ask you, a German, whether Von Gras would be a better name. Yes. I'm gonna pronounce it that way. Okay. Now, I'm also kind of low key wondering if fucking the guy. Because I still remember when Weiss Cruz was routinely rendered on uh, convention uh, notice boards as Cruz. <laughs> Which, mean, like, accurate. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I was gonna say. But this whole backstory chunk did leave me wondering, wait, did did Altqvist also read this book? Because it's also just Eli's backstory, basically. Except that Altqvist at least had empathy for Eli. That's true. And there's no explicit mutilation in this book i mean the mutilation is implied yeah the, so the mutilation is inherent mm-hmm. well it's also doing exactly the same thing that was present in um near dark bigelow's near dark also had this same type of character where the masculine sexual frustration was the driving force of this guy because he wasn't able to attain the same sexual access to grown women. So he brutalizes them. So basically, Graham Grab, the scary German. Yes, the scary noble pedophile comes in, takes a liking to Simon's older brother who is at this point a wee bab of like five and then yes, rolls Simon right back is, out of town with Simon him. Simon is literally an infant uh-huh. and von Gras literally just abducts this child and goes. But it's treated as like Sort of telling on Christopher being already a bad seed, because he's super happy to spend time with this adult who pays attention to him. Right. And, like, sit on this dude's lap. Yeah, the victim blaming starts early. It's super early. 300 years ago. The victim (laughs) blaming is 300 years deep. So Simon, you know, Simon's mom is never the same. And And then then she dies. Because... reasons yeah well not we in fact know the reasons yes but but to him it's reasons and then he discovers we're not entirely sure what happened because we only get it filtered through simon's perspective by all accounts on the timeline christopher gets released back into the wild shortly after being vamped and toddles on home to his mom and then kills her yeah but like we're supposed to not judge simon for spending like literal decades murdering random people after being turned into a vampire. He's like, that, that's not me, though. Excuse me? You, but you're blaming a toddler. Right, yeah, like this- You're th- blaming a kindergartner. Yeah, like it's- And he implies it's like, you know, she gets scared seeing him as a vampire, so he- To punish her for that, he kills her. But also but like, like- he doesn't know that. Right. He wasn't there. Uh-huh. Simon grows up extremely spoiled with all the money he could want, and, uh, you know, fucking and whoring- Yep. And his dad just was distant, but never paid attention, but that's okay because he's a dad. And this is how we connect that up to Zoe's struggles with her dad. Because you just don't want to blame a dad for being shitty. Because they're sad. They're sad, though. Have you considered? Yeah, if they're sad. Then it's okay. Then it's all okay that they're bad at dealing with the spawn. Because, I mean, the spawn were created to be dealt with by the, by the lady, and if she's vanished, like... What's he supposed That's really to her fault. It? Yeah. Simon gets foolishly brought in by his own literal brother that he has a portrait of. Like, I need to stress, he travels with a portrait of his brother every day. Uh-huh. Now, now, he in fairness. He keeps it in his weird suitcase of dirt. His brother put on a hat before kid- before doing the kidnapping. Right. And his brother found him when he was drunk and done from the whoring and mm-hmm. pretended to be a lamplighter and led him to where he was imprisoned. And it's very explicit mm-hmm. that Christopher is not willingly in this situation. Yeah, he's With a, Von Grass. He, he's basically an, an enforced gopher, and Simon also, is- Also, he can turn into a bat. Yeah, we we're, we kept those rules. He can also turn into steam. Simon only turns into steam, but Christopher turns into a bat, because I guess that's bestial and gross. It's supposed to be scary, but all you can see it's is- It's just hilarious. <laughs> Oh, it's so precious. So Simon is supposed to just be a blood bag until he dies, but Christopher is like, "Hey, I brought you specifically here to try and get out of this. You want to help me, this guy? Do you want to help me deal with this fucker?" But you know, si- Simon. Well, has already made his judgments. Uh, well, and then Christopher lies to him, and he's like, "No, nah, no, nah, you can totally eat animals. Oops, I lied. Except that they can, just not right away." Which is literally the same rules that basically Stephanie Myers used. It's basically the same rules that Rice used. Like, yes, you can eat animals. No, it's not satisfying. But like, it'll get you bi, I guess. But no, no, it's- These vampires aren't bi. No, that would be gay. Yep. The whole, oops, I lied, is a very maniacal moment, which is how we know he is evil and too far gone to save. This dude hasn't spoken to his brother in like 10 years. Longer. Maybe 15? No, no, you're right. No, no, no. He was an infant when it happened, so it's gotta be like... It's 19. It's 19 years. Then Simon somehow, like, accidentally kills Von Grass with a stake, And yet, Christopher is just so demonic that it's very hard to kill him. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, he's been trying for years. Christopher is one of those characters where, like, yes, by the time he's a modern-day serial killer, he's kind of over the line there, but I... Because there's definitely, like, a brutalizing element there. But also, he, I would like to know more about this interesting character. In addition to this character basically being a gender-flopped Claudia, uh-huh. which he blatantly is, and also blatantly drawing from lo- from uh, near dark with that character, it's just very frustrating that we're presented with this character and the constraints of his physical form And him working to accommodate them by, like, working through the foster system and stuff. But we're presented with this other element that's given to us as the way, the specific way Simon tracked him. And Simon considers it a measure of deliberate taunting. The way Simon found Christopher is by tracking him through child porn he was participating in. And that's, like, just tossed off. But so the implication is that children who are featured in child porn are matured beyond their years and willfully engaging in depravity for the purposes of outraging the sensibilities of the righteous. And also, why the fuck was Simon watching kitty porn? There's a lot of layers. Like, how do you accidentally watch kitty porn in 1989? Didn't Christopher send it to him? Am I misremembering that? I don't remember that. I'm pretty sure Simon said he was deliberately watching it to track him, which how did you watch the first one? (laughs) Like, like he basically presented it as he participates in these filthy sexual acts with adults in order to taunt me, which number one, that's a horrible thing to say to victims of child sexual assault. But also if you're looking at the flip side, where this is an adult character in this body, you're basically saying that his chosen sexual encounters exist only as performative behaviors for others which like it's bad all the way down well and also then you open again, the door into was... a really 900 years old thing well yes you do like it's bad in every possible way and also mm-hmm. why was simon watching kitty porn it's just bad from every direction because simon literally doesn't speak to anyone i believe that simon can absolutely find kitty porn on a, on a street corner any day because he's the kind of creep who doesn't speak to anyone except the person he sidles up to and is like hey you have said the word kitty porn too many times on this recording for my empty glass we have to stop now <laughs> i'm sorry but it's really fucking gross at that like once you once we have the giant backstory dump there's not a lot left to the novel no there's not much plot left it's just hey you want to help me kill my brother and she's like yeah I will. yeah she's like yeah let's dig a, a pit that will hope no humans falling too they will be fine and then she like lures christopher along and she and they and he falls into a pit yep full of stakes and then simon is like i can't fucking do this anymore and he just like it's like i'm done <laughs> and waits for the sunrise but but it's special for him he doesn't painfully burn this time because he has accepted jesus and just turns to mist uh, blissfully because he has accepted that he's supposed to be dead now that he you know did everything that he cared about which is not how being dead works i'm sorry lots of people are dead without getting to do the things they wanted Mm You ain't special i will say that you know before the other things we have to talk about it's not perfect in execution but i do at least appreciate that this is one of the few times i've seen vampires used as like a metaphor for coming to terms with one's own mortality in a way that actually is at least supposedly intended to sympathize with the characters who go on living yeah because a lot of the time it's more destructive where it's gosh i super want to be dead oh now i extra want to be dead Uh, yeah it's like 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 daniel Malloy. whereas with this it's more gosh being dead would suck how about how about i keep living and do something with my life and not be a shithead to the people i love and then it squanders all of that with the two short stories it does yeah so the the first uh the first one was written for an anthology some years later a decade later uh yeah 2001 Uh, and edited by james howe which i'm sure 100 percent of you recognize as the name of the Banicula guy uh huh. I love Vanicula. I love Vanicula so much. Who doesn't love Benicula? Chester is the best character ever written. Chester the cat is—he's very good. Oh, Chester is just the Pepe Silvia meme, like in a tiny fluffy body. <laughs> yeah, excuse me, fluffy. He is a scraggly orange ginger cat <laughs> with barely enough to fur to cover him rangy body. And of the two short stories, this is the this is the better one the one written for an anthology where somebody had control, is better. It's a it's a prequel. It takes place in the Summer of Love. Just blatantly and aggressively chomping interview vibes. Just saying. It does take place in San Francisco, yes. But basically Simon is just fucking chomping whores. But there is only one pussy good enough to make him care about the living again. He's literally just murdering women but they're sluts so we don't care they're sluts and they're on drugs because zoe's the only special person worth talking to in 300 years this story is legitimately extremely affecting but because it's about pet death i read it uh assuming that it kind of i don't know why i assumed that but taken as kind of a a prequel to the novel i thought it was interesting just in terms of might be younger readers who haven't lost hopefully a family member but might be more familiar with you know losing a pet because that's the first brush with mortality that a lot of people face and like that's an interesting way to kind of help I broaden remember. your readership base i can't remember if, if it was for Foucault, Bart, or echo who wrote an entire essay that was about that's the purpose of pets is to accustom us to the concept of death before our parents die. Zoe has no pets, and I feel like that's significant. He's basically being a shitty vampire in a conveniently unoccupied carriage house in San Francisco. And there's a cat there. She's a good little cat. She's just a good little gray tabby. And he's a shithead. Yeah, like he's gone through all these efforts to like make the cat like him and interact with him and let him pet it and it's very gratifying which it is like if you've ever had a stray animal that you've tried to habituate it's very heartwarming if they come to trust you and then he left antifreeze around his shitty vampire lair because he's a vampire and doesn't give a fuck and the cat drank it so he rushes the cat to one of the hippie clinics that were very present in uh In San Francisco at the time. I think Sawblum's had a whole episode about that, didn't they? Quite possibly they've had a lot of episodes. Yeah, I think they did have an episode about sort of the health clinics in San Fran at the time. Hmm. And they're like, yeah, this cat's gonna die. Sorry. Her, Her organs are shutting down. Yeah. And then he was sad. Reasonably sad. Like, not to be dismissive. It's very sad. But I think it's a case where it's more sad because of the situation than mm-hmm. because I give a fuck about this character. Yeah, no, Simon can fuck off. But, but, but somehow dead cat. The, the dead cat makes him want to not kill people as much, which makes him even shittier, frankly, considering he was sort of presenting it to Zoe as, yeah, I haven't killed anybody since I was like deranged and stuff 300 years ago. He lied. We cool. Uh-huh. But, like, only this special little cat. And considering he appears to exclusively kill women, just like his brother. Yeah, but when he does it, it's fine, though. Yeah. Because he didn't slit their throats after. Yeah. So then the other story is called The Christmas Cat, and is a piece of shit and shouldn't have been printed. <sighs> I hate it. Cause like- I'm confident in saying that. I read this book faster than you did. Uh-huh. And for, like, the le- the few days before you finished it, I feel like you thought I was being really mean. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because like there are, it does have a lot of the same nascent problems that a lot of the genre does. But I think there are ways you can read it that are more, you know, forgiving in Because of her age and the traumatic situations that like, okay, this is a shitty teen, but teens are shitty sometimes when life is hard or just because being a teenager sucks. So, you know, maybe we're just seeing her at the worst time in her life and she'll go on to become a healthy, functioning adult, which is what the ending is supposed to imply. Whatever. Yeah, and then this follow up story written in 2009 for the re-release. Shows that that didn't happen. Yep. It just completely tanks the implicit growth of the end of the book. (laughs) Yeah, she's just a bad person. Like, being a bad person is her baseline state, and the nascent moves towards positive behaviors were literally just a reaction to, to a sudden event, and then she reverted to form. Because she... now she's in college.
1: Also deeply, in San
0: Francisco. Deeply. In San Francisco, where her mom went, but her mom went to college for art, and she's attending for her shitty poetry. <laughs> but deeply. Deeply. Mm-hmm. And she's not really talking to her father or Lorraine anymore, which the the only other two characters in the book. The the only ones that it existed. So yep. she because she's just too deep for them. And she's sworn that she will never love a man again. Yeah, like the book the this this short story fucking opens on her saying, I will never want a dick again. Uh huh. And the story exists to get her to accept the possibility that maybe Dick. Because, wouldn't you know it, she meets a little cat. A little gray tabby. And then- and she's got Simon's stupid fucking portrait of his family. And y'all? And she, like, feeds the cat and gives it water, and then it walks into the portrait. No, no, it's dumber than that. Ghost Simon comes to get the cat, and then it's in the portrait. Uh, yeah, and then it appears in the portrait. But he leaves a note explaining it in case she's too dumb to understand what happened. Which is insulting like every good ghost story just does that shit and then the character has to be like I'm gonna put on my John Simms voice and then I realized that the cat was in the painting it was there I don't know why but <laughs> like that's how ghost stories work Uh-huh. but no this has to explain it Because she may know how to write vampire stories a little bit. She doesn't know how to write ghost stories, which are a different animal entirely. Mm -hmm. Well, like, there was definitely Christian underpinnings to the original novel, but I feel like it at least tried to reckon a little bit with the fact that dying is scary and like gave her, Zoe's mom, like this speech about like, you know, having this existential dread about just the possibility of not existing anymore. Right. But, but also how zoe's mom was so filled with life as it exists in reality and why it would be unethical to put her in the position of being a vampire which was the antithesis to Mm -hmm. her understanding of existence but nope now we've got fluffy cloud heaven don't even worry about it there is no downside to becoming a vampire because you will become a fluffy cloud ghost also conform and bone down with someone Not that we're presented with anybody that she might be interested in boning down with. Nope. But surely that will happen. you got to get married and pop out those kids, though. She's got to squeeze out another kid. So that some of the many other vampires that Christopher definitely created can get it on with them. I think we can assume. (sighs) That's not actually implied anywhere, but come on. (laughs) Like, Christopher is that kind of vampire. And it's astonishing how much of what positives the book had this story ruins in like six pages yeah it squanders them aggressively because it just makes her into a much shittier person and just and just shows she hasn't learned or gained anything from this it was basically a blip on her radar because she would definitely have been behaving this i will never love again way if she had fucked a jock or if she dated a boy from poetry club Or a guy who was in drama club who came out. I guess what we're saying is that this is another object lesson in why authors should never return to things they wrote more than a decade ago. Just don't do it. You're a different person now. Yeah, it's it's been 19 years. Don't. You are not in the same emotional space you were then. You can't do it. Yeah, because she ended on a high note and then just did this. It's just... Oh, it sucks. And like... On the bright side. And, and the first short story, fine, I can see giving a little backfill to the vampire. Like that that's what the entirety of his backstory exists for. That that's what vampire backstories are understood to do. Like it's eye rolling, but it at least fits the tone of the book. Whereas this short story It's real bad. Just just ruins Zoe's character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ruins any goodwill you could extend yeah. to like to to what was already honestly a generous reading completely torpedoes it out of the water. Yeah, just deeply sad. Yeah, because like I don't enjoy hating hating a large swath of paranormal YA with female protagonists. It's just so many of them seem to have this continuing problem. Yeah, and again, the real MVP is the best friend. mm Hmm. Like, Lorraine is dealing with so much and has not been informed of any of it. Lorraine never even knows she was almost murdered by a toddler. Nope. Not even once. Because she's not worth telling that to. And I guess Zoe never talked to her again. As far as we know. Apparently, she moved to Oregon, which is basically the (laughs) boon. Like, like phones fucking (coughs) exist. Hell, by the follow-up story, it's very clear that Zoe has access to Instant Messenger. Mm-hmm. And just doesn't use it for Lorraine. Rude. Like it's explicit that Zoe has access to instant messenger, which makes it m- makes me kind of a little bit confused as to when exactly it's set. Deeply confusing. Because the Eternal Summer was, I think, in '94, like the Eternal September, when uh, when AOL created the situation of continuous new users rather than um, new users based on the college enrollment cycle. But I guess that tracks numerically. She She's about 20, so she probably had access through her school at 18 and 19. But we shouldn't even need to assume the presence of internet contact because she has a fucking phone. And phones were very important and very assumed to be present mm-hmm. at the time. Like, you could fucking call people. It kind of sets the stage for... You know, by the time you get to Bella and all of the girls she knows at school who are just posers who don't really want to be friends with her. I was so fucking confused when I watched Twilight because everybody seemed to be really nice to her. No, but they're not deep enough. I didn't understand why she was being so nasty to them. They're not vampires. She's on the hunt for that dick. (laughs) But yeah, it's just kind of really frustrating because you can see the exact way it slots in and there is a zero percent chance that that's not the sequence of events yeah it's also very disappointing yeah like it's sort of historically interesting but it's not really fun to read at all so that's too Just bad kind of made me sad mm-hmm. yeah. because i can see how this character could have been good Simon couldn't. He's a loss. No, yeah, there's no there's nothing getting back from there. Simon's fucking boring and I don't care about him. Mm-hmm. Throw him in the trash. Right in the trash. But Zoe could have been interesting and then the follow-up story written, I think significantly in the edge of Twilight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when this was re released in two thousand nine. Cough, cough. Really So you know, we gotta write some new with the same color palette on the on the re-release cover too. Yeah. Yeah. But like, we got to create some new back matter to make the publication have a reason. Mm-hmm. It feels that perfunctory. Yeah. It feels extremely commercial and perfunctory and it kind of ruins the character yeah. because it feels like she's not still plugged into the dynamic she was writing. Mm-hmm. Why stick with the watered down version when you can talk about the real thing? Uh, but before that, yeah, thanks for listening, y'all. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more of our podcast, including our mainline, Trash and Treasures, by looking for Trash and Treasures on SoundCloud or the Podcatcher of Your Choice. You can also email us at Trash Treasures Pod at gmail.com. Or you can get hold of us on social media. We are on Tumblr at trash and we're on Twitter at TrashPod. Come say hi to us. Um We like to give folks a shout out on the show as a thanks. Particular nod this time to at Celestial Rand, who we always see around both on Twitter and Tumblr, but I'm particularly glad you enjoyed our our Smallville trash diving. It's gratifying to see. Yes. (laughs) So, as I was saying, this feels, you know, why stick with watered down when you can go for the real thing? Go for something may- much, much trashier. We've we tried to tackle this before and it turned out to be a lot. So we're going to hopefully get all the way through it this time. Uh, and next episode of Drunk Book Club. Yes, next episode of Drunk Book Club. So a couple weeks here. Uh, We will bring you Anne Rice's exit to Eaton. <laughs> <laughs> so look forward to that. I, I hear y'all like it when we dunk <laughs> on the trash garbage lady. Uh, we just we just we needed the break. Yeah. And this has sort of ramped us back up. Yep. (laughs) So look forward to that. And until next time, take care of yourselves. See y'all.